Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, The Songs of Ascent. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Today, we're looking at Psalm 132. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, and their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him dependently in prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may accordingly hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to look at a couple of areas in this psalm, and just in, in summary, hit a few things I want to draw to your attention. The psalmist prays this, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And then he declares... For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And then the Lord says, Zion is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So the psalmist prays, and then declares, and then the Lord confirms a particular place of his presence. But isn't the Lord omnipresent? Doesn't the psalmist 
describe his inability to escape God's presence? Think about David's psalm when he prayed, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And then think about when Solomon, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, and it is referred to as the dwelling place of the Lord, Solomon then prays this, Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And yet, at the end of his prayer, Solomon then turns to the people and he says to them, The Lord our God be with us as he is with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. So my question is, how can Solomon acknowledge the limitlessness of God and yet desire his presence? How can God be omnipresent and have a dwelling place, as the psalmist describes in this psalm? The distinction is in God's choosing to manifest himself, particularly to his chosen children. In the Old Testament, we see this clearly in the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept in the tabernacle where Israel was to go and worship the Lord. So important was this manifest presence of the Lord for Israel, King David, you may recall, transferred the ark from Kiriath-Jerim, which is also referred to in our psalm as J.R., transferred it to Jerusalem. So important was this, that David said, this is where the dwelling place of the Lord will be, as the Lord had instructed him. He who is omnipresent is present with his people particularly, or we might say uniquely. The point of the Lord's presence, as David knows well in his description, is to know and to worship God. Not according to our notions, but as God has revealed Himself, as He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And this is why, this is why, if you missed it, you're going to see it now. In this psalm, the psalmist is drawing from God's Word in praying His prayer. It's why the Word of God is so important to the people of God. God is not silent. He has indeed spoken in His Word. Think about it. All Scripture is breathed out by God as the rule of faith and life. I mean, rightly does our Westminster Confession state that all things necessary for God's own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. And so it should not be any surprise to us that the psalmist begins his prayer to the Lord quoting and paraphrasing God's Word. He's praying God's Word. But think, my next question though is, if it is God's Word, doesn't he already know it? Why would you pray God's word if it's, if it's 
God's Word. Isn't praying God's Word like a purposeless redundancy? No, not at all. When we go to God's Word, we find that it gives the concepts, but it also gives us the words to pray in keeping with God's will. As I've said before, if you are struggling in your prayer life, one of the best things that you can do is just open the Word of God, probably to one of the Psalms, maybe even to this Psalm, and pray God's Word. The psalmist begins his prayer this way. Look at the text with me. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Why does he say remember? Did God forget? No, that's silly. It is because the Davidic covenant serves as the basis and the framework for the prayer that he is getting ready to pray. He is going to draw from that Davidic covenant. He is going to use it to weave his prayer together as he prays to the Lord. What does he include in his petition? Well, if you look at the text with me, you see that he includes David's hardships. He includes David's oath. He includes David's goal to build the temple. All of these are descriptions. It is as if the psalmist is walking through 1 Samuel chapter or 2 Samuel chapter 7 or 1 Chronicles chapter 22. It's as if he's just walking through God's word and then he is praying it to the Lord. You see, the psalmist is not aimlessly plucking Bible verses to pray. Remember, had any family or friends that used to do this number? There it is. And behold, Boaz came for Bethlehem. There you go. God's word revealed. No, that's silly. The psalmist is praying with intent, using God's word to guide him. Why does he point back, for example, to David's favor? I mean, he starts out that, Lord, remember, remember David's favor. Why start there? Because the psalmist desires to worship the Lord in joyful praise. Just like the day that the Ark of the Covenant arrived in Jerusalem. Do you remember that day? The day that David danced before the Ark with joy. The day in which the musicians and the singers cried out in praise to God. The psalmist wants to remember that day. And in this word-saturated prayer, what we're seeing is a heart set. On praising the Lord, just like David, couched in remembering the faithfulness and favor of David, you see what the psalmist is doing here? He's teaching you and me how to pray. He teach, he's teaching us how to pray. And one of the ways that he teaches us how to pray is he teaches us to remember God's promises. To remember God's promises. Unique to the psalmist's prayer is his emphasis upon David's oath to God. Quote, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And then he points to the Lord's oath to David. Look at it with me. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And what did the Lord swear to David? Well, the psalmist provides it here. 
one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And as we read, it was as if I had you turn. You don't need to turn there right now. But if I had you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we would read this about how David desired to build the Lord's temple. But as David desired to build the Lord's temple, the Lord desired to build David's throne into a dynasty. He promised him a dynasty. Your house, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16 your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We refer to this theologically as the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God makes with David. The language there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is binding. It is, as we would say, it is covenantal. And telling of the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. To the one he loves. It is a remarkable moment. In Israel's hope inspiring history. This is a high point. And then following David's reign. Solomon ascended to the throne. So far so good right? Well and, and, until the end. You know the rest of the story, right? I mean, the history of the Davidic throne goes downhill from Solomon. The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And then, and then, if you know your history, your biblical history, you know, and then there were none. And then there was no throne at all. There was no one left to sit on something that wasn't even there. And when there is no king, and no throne, no kingdom, we wonder, as the people of God, did God fail to keep His promise? When there's nothing left, we think, well, may, may, maybe that's it. Maybe, well, maybe it's over. What good is remembering when a dynasty is dead? And it's easy to lose hope when we read God's eternal word, you see, through the filter of current events. If you read God's word through the filter of your circumstances, if you read God's word through the filter of the current events of this day, you can lose hope in a nanosecond. Big problem. Got to turn it around, don't you? You see, God's word is eternal. This moment in time is temporal. It does not go on forever. God's word can feel impotent to those entrapped by the tyranny of their times. And there are many Christians today who have reached a point in their life of hopelessness. Because they have forgotten that the most important thing in their life is to go to God's word. To drown out and turn off all the noise. God's word is eternal. In challenging times, 
you and I can be tested. And we can be tested, interestingly enough, according to Scripture, by the Lord. Will we believe what He has said to us? Will we take God's word, God at His word? Will we believe His promises? For faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so you see, when the psalmist remembered God's promise to David, the fullness of time had not yet come. He had no idea how God would fulfill his promise to David. What he knew is God had promised. And he took God at his word. In fact, some scholars believe that this psalmist is writing this during the period of the Babylonian exile. There ain't nobody left. There is no throne. And even when they get back together in that land of Israel, there's still no throne. There's still no kingdom. And there is no hope. Based on their current events. Based on their circumstances. And the psalmist says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And he prays and he prays earnestly. In fact, the first half of this psalm is a prayer. And so I ask you, on this Sunday morning in 2022, was the psalmist's prayer answered? Did God answer his prayer? Yes, he answered his prayer. That God would return the rightful heir of David to his throne. But here's the thing I want you to remember. His prayer was answered not in his lifetime nor the lifetime of his children, nor the lifetime of their 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 children. Anybody keeping track of my math? I could go on. Are we willing to believe and pray prayers that may not be answered in our lifetime? Because we as moderns are really about ourselves. Are we willing to pray prayers that may not be answered in our children's lifetime and yet still believe the Lord, still trust in His promises? You see, the psalmist believed, the psalmist prayed, and it was answered in Jesus, the Son of God, the heir of the Davidic throne. Think about it this way. When the angel appeared to Mary... Do you remember the language that the angel said to Mary? It's remarkably similar to the language of this psalm. Psalm 132. Here's what the angel said. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And in his kingdom there will be no end. You see, the point is this. The point is that God indeed does answer prayer, but not according to our timing. Consider that we today are recipients. Today we are recipients of the prayer that the psalmist prayed. Let that sink in. We're recipients of a prayer that he prayed how long, how many thousands of years ago? 
For no matter how many promises God has made, Paul writes, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us pray and let us always remember the one who made the promise is trustworthy. You can take Him at His word. The second half of the psalm is not the psalmist's prayer. The second half is, in part, the Lord answering the prayer, so also describing in greater depth in response to what the psalmist has prayed. For example, the topic of Zion, which runs through the latter half of the psalm. In Scripture, Zion is a name rich with significance and varied in meaning. The name dates back at least to David's capture of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And when David had the Ark of the Covenant transferred to Jerusalem, do you know where he eventually took the Ark? We know that eventually it ended up on the highest point of the city. What was the highest point of the city in Jerusalem? Mount Zion. The Hebrew word Zion literally means high point or highest point. So it's it's very easy to understand where that name came from. That high point of the city of Jerusalem. But the word Zion is used far more than a geographic description. It probably did start out as a geographic description. But we see in scripture it's used in a far more varied way. And although technically within the confines of Jerusalem, Zion is used as a synonym for the capital. It's used as a synonym for the people that live within the capital city. Or, for example, in my study and preparing for this, just to look through how the different ways that Zion is used. Wait for it. It's used to refer to the city of David, city of God, holy hill, holy city, holy mountain, and, well, of course, where we are today. The Lord's chosen and desired dwelling place. And in the context of God's promise to David, Zion is the designated place. It is the place of the dynastic reign. The place of David's eternal, the throne of David's eternal reign. And this has led many to look at that specific location of Jerusalem for its fulfillment. But here's the problem with that perspective. That's not how the New Testament writers interpret it. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, what you find, for example, in the second chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul describes how God in Christ has made the Jew and Gentile one new man in place of the two, giving us access in one spirit to the Father and being joined and built into A holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the dwelling place that we see and hear in the psalm, the New Testament writers then pick up on that idea of Zion and dwelling place in describing, well, those who have been joined into this one new man. The language is strikingly similar. Under the new covenant, Zion no longer refers, as it did under David, to that ethnic, 
geographical, sociological, or political realm and reign of David's kingdom, but it refers to the realm and reign of Christ. In Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, we have already come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He wasn't on a tour guide. He wasn't visiting, quote-unquote, the Holy Land. The writer of Hebrews says, we've already arrived. We are at Mount Zion. And in his vision, the Apostle John sees Zion not as a rebuilt temple, but a heavenly pinnacle of Christ's reign over his people. What the New Testament makes clear is that Zion is not a geographic place, but a redeemed people in whom the living God dwells. In Christ, individually, Scripture says that you and I, individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Scripture then says that we are not individually indwelled by the Holy Spirit to live out our lives alone. Scripture then describes the church. As we gather, as we assemble collectively, God is using each of us, as the Apostle Peter refers to it, as a living stone, chosen and precious in God's sight. And together, you and I in Christ, we stone by living stone. We are being built into the house of God. As Zion, we collectively are the place of Christ's regal reign and rule. Therefore, the church is not merely an option for Christian observance, but we are the place of God's abiding presence, a holy temple. In fact, Paul says to the church, not individually, but plurally, you. You, Paul says, are the temple of God. In light of the New Testament's interpretation of Zion, in this passage, I want to very briefly draw out four demonstrations that I want you to remember. In fact, these are four demonstrations within the latter part of the psalm that I think every Christian should know. First, we do not live as those who are seeking to win God's love and secure His affection, but we live as God's chosen and desired people. Beloved in love, He predestined us. For love, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are His chosen and desired dwelling place. The psalmist says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Consider the magnitude of that. Consider the magnitude of that. As one pastor observes, and I think puts it brilliantly, the Lord did not choose the university, government, industry, or even the family, as important as it is. He has set aside a body of believers, an assembly of saints, to be His chosen dwelling place. Secondly, while God works through means... Ultimately, 
It is God who provides for our physical needs. Although God works through specific and ordinary means, it's ultimately God who provides for our physical needs. In a highly materialistic society, it is easy to take God's provision for granted. But what do you have that you did not receive? That's why maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I, I still think we ought to pray before dinner and lunch and breakfast. Just why? Once a person said, who's going to say the blessing today? And one guy said, God's already blessed it. And I said, well, that's not what it means. That Hebrew use of the word blessing means thanksgiving. And yes, the Lord's blessed it, but we've not yet given thanks. So, moron, let's bow your head. I didn't say that. But I sure thought it. The Lord says, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. You see, regardless of your individual income, regardless of your net worth, do we not pray for our daily bread? Regardless. Does God not provide for each of us? Does not the Lord teach us? Look. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, indeed we are. We are the chosen dwelling place of the Lord. Number three. In Christ, God provides for us spiritually. Now, to emphasize this, I want you to look up at the ninth verse in this psalm with me. Again, this is the psalmist. The psalmist is praying for something, and he prays, Let your priest be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Now, look down to the 16th verse, and hear the Lord answer his prayer. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. I mean, in this very psalm, what a beautiful answer to prayer delivered to Christ's saints, to the priests. That would be us in Christ. We have indeed received the favor of God in Christ. And as promised, Christ's church is, and here's the way that it's described in Exodus, which is later echoed by the Apostle Peter, we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is the church. We're a kingdom of priests. That is the church. We are a holy nation. Clothed only in the righteousness of Christ, saved unto eternal life, I have to ask you, as we've looked at this psalm, how can we do anything but rejoice? Fourth and finally, as we are chosen, as we are desired by God, as He cares for us physically, cares for us spiritually, He rules over His church. No one else. Christ rules over His church. And we see this in this psalm. As the psalmist returns to God's promise to David, and he returns to the point of the eternal dynasty. How will God fulfill 
his promise to David, his oath to David, his covenant with David. The Lord says, there in Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. Now, in biblical literature, the horn is a symbol of power. It can also be used as a symbol of authority. But it is personified here. That power, that person of authority is personified here as a horn. A horn of David. And who is this horn? Who is this sprout? Who is this son? It is no coincidence that upon the birth of John the Baptist, you may recall that John the Baptist dad, father, had left, lost his ability to speak. When John the Baptist was born, and when his father, Zachariah, confirmed what his name would be, his voice returned, and this is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit's work, at that moment he began to prophesy, and he said this, listen closely for the time with this psalm, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. On the birth of his son, John, he is prophesying in regards to the one who will follow John, the sprout of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The horn, as Zechariah prophesied, is that horn for which the psalmist, back in verse 9, he prayed. The Lord's anointed. The word anointed, I think many of you know, the Hebrew word translated anointed, uh, when it is transliterated is how we get the word Messiah. When the word Messiah is translated into Greek, we get the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed. So you can look at this psalm and see very clearly that this is a Christocentric psalm. As God promised David, one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. So he fulfilled in the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who reigns over his kingdom, even now, and is crowned in resplendent glory. And this is, of course, good news. We call it the gospel, don't we? This is good news for all who are in Christ, all who joyfully live under his reign. But... And this is the way the psalm ends. It is not good news for his enemies. All who reject his gospel freely offered, his righteous rule graciously given. And as Zion is the dwelling place of God, to whom Christ has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the authority to bind and loose on earth as it is in heaven all who reject the gospel of Christ's church will be brought to shame. But the love of God shines forth in His dwelling place. For Christ and His body are one. But where there is no love for Christ's church, there is no love of God. Therefore, as I titled the sermon, for the love of God, let us love one another. Enjoying the dwelling place and the presence of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you that in your mercy and grace, 
you chose us before the foundation of the world. And we thank you that you have chosen to build your house, Mount Zion, that you have chosen to do it in a people redeemed in Christ, in Christ alone. And so may we be a people who are not only mindful of this truth, but so also worshipers of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.